The following recording is a presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Rohnert Park, California, and of Pastor Val Mark Smith. We are an independent Baptist congregation committed to the accurate presentation of the historical doctrines of the faith. We welcome your visit to our services anytime here in the Rohnert Park area. I'd like for you to take your Bibles, please, and open them to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 23. It is good to be back in the pulpit this morning. Uh, I love preaching to our people here in Berean Baptist. What I'd like to do today is to return to uh, the subject that we were speaking of when I left uh, just a couple of weeks ago. And we're talking about these first 12 verses in Matthew chapter 23. And in these scriptures, Jesus is speaking in his last public discourse. Now remember, this is the last week of Jesus' life, and he uses this particular passage as his last opportunity to warn people, to warn these people about the deceitfulness of their religious leaders. And what Jesus had to say here in this chapter, these are very strong words, and we're going to look at more of them in the next uh, two or three messages as we finish out this chapter. But these are very strong words, and they're not the kinds of things that you would expect to hear when you come to a church service. Uh, The way that Christ handled the word, and he handled false teachers, uh, is strange to the hearing of many people today. Jesus did not cut them any slack. He didn't uh, didn't just ease up on those who handled the word of God deceitfully. He had no tolerance for anyone who would teach people a lie and would lead them down to a path of destruction in the fires of hell. Now, in fact, he says back in the seventh chapter, he said, Enter ye in at the straight gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the way that leadeth to destruction, and many there be which go in thereat, because straight is the gate, and narrow is the way, which leadeth unto life, and few there be that find it. Now, there are plenty of false teachers that are out there handing out road maps for the broad way, and the end of that path is just as Jesus predicted, and that is destruction in the fires of hell. So he has a lot to say about people who would lead the others down the path of the broad way. Let's stand, if you would, please, as we read God's Word. Uh, chapter 23, we'll start at verse number 1 and read down to verse number 12. Then spake Jesus to the multitude and to his disciples saying, The scribes and Pharisees sit in Moses' seat. All therefore, whatsoever they bid you observe, that observe and do. But do not ye after their works, for they say and do not. For they bind heavy burdens and grievous to be borne, and lay them on men's shoulders. But they themselves will not move them with one of their fingers. But all their works they do for to be seen of men." They make broad their phylacteries and enlarge the borders of their garments and love the uppermost rooms at feast and the chief seats in the synagogues and greetings in the markets and to be called of men, Rabbi, Rabbi. But be not ye called Rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Neither be ye called masters, for one is your master, even Christ. But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself 
shall be exalted. Father, we thank you for your word. Help us as we look into it today. Show us what you would have for us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. Now what I'd like to do as we begin this morning is just kind of catch you up on the previous parts of this message. There has been a lot that we've gone over. Uh, I took a break for the Shepherds Conference last week down in the Los Angeles area. And I received a lot of instruction there about uh, the narrow way that Jesus talks about in Matthew chapter 7. And uh, going to a conference like that, it's really uplifting because we really do rejoice that there are still some men of God who do teach the truth, who, who stick to the, to the word of God, and they have a resolve to preach the very things that God has said. Now today we have a lot of uncertainty in the pulpit. There's a lot of that's being said that is not what God says, and I'm just thankful that I could sit among about 3,500 men that were there that have just turned their backs on the nonsense of what goes on in pulpits today that people call gospel preaching. Now, in Jesus' time, there were false teachers, and we need not expect that we would find any less in the day that we live in. And so the way that we are to deal with false teachers is to use the biblical method, to use the New Testament model, which would be the way that Jesus treated false prophets. Now again, there are people that stand in pulpits today in many of our churches, and they're not teaching the Word of God. And so God has a way of dealing with that. Jesus had a way of dealing with this among these people in his time. And his method was to call false teachers out. It was to name them. It was to point them out, not to leave them alone, and not let them do what they do without saying anything. And certainly we're not to ever coddle a false teacher. And what Jesus did was to pounce on their heresies. He did call them out and he gave them the truth. And this is the same that we need to do today. And then when we've done that, we need to help people find true preachers of God's word, true servants of God that can lead them in the paths of righteousness and to eternal life. Now, let me, let me just mention the topics of our other discussions. We, were, we began this by talking about the marks of a false teacher. And here in these scriptures, Jesus gives some identifying characteristics of those that handle the word of God deceitfully. First, he says here that they sit in Moses' seat. And that was just a way of saying that a false teacher claims to have authority when he speaks. He claims that he's speaking with the authority of God. Now, the reference to Moses is used here because Moses was God's very special prophet. He was one that the Bible says spoke face to face with God. That when God spoke to him, Moses received a direct revelation from God so that when he spoke, he did actually speak for God because that's where he got his authority. And that is the same thing that a false teacher claims. He also claims to speak for God, but rather than getting his authority directly from the Word of God, there are many times when a false teacher will say that God has spoken to me directly, just like he spoke to Moses. But they don't speak for God. And when anyone stands in the pulpit and he claims that he's saying what God said, you had better go straight to the Bible to check him out. And if he says that he has a new revelation that came from God, or if he says that God has appeared to me in a vision, or God has spoken to me in a dream, if he has any other way 
of saying that he got information from God other than from reading the scriptures, then you mark that person off. Don't go with that kind of person any further because he does not speak for God. You have just found a false prophet. Now, this is what the Bible says. It says in 2 Timothy, all Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be truly furnished unto all good works. Now, God has no other way of speaking to us today than his word because he says that in his word is everything that you need to to know about him, everything that you need to know him and to walk with him. And the scripture warns about anyone who adds or takes away from God's word. And so whenever you find someone who's not solely dependent upon the written word of God, then you know that he doesn't speak for God. Now, I will tell you this, that here at Berean, we preach from God's Word. And not only do we preach from God's Word, but we invite you to scrutinize every word that is said. We're not afraid to have the doctrines that we teach tested. And so what we want you to do is we want you to take your Bible, we want you to look up every scripture that's read, we want you to read every word for yourself, we want you to carefully examine every doctrine that is taught, and we want you to take that and turn it over and over and over again, expose it to the light of God's word, and make sure this is what God says. We're going to take the scriptures and we want you to hold up everything in the light of scripture and make sure that it matches what God said because what I do not want to do, I never want to say what God has not said. Now another characteristic of false teachers that Jesus gives here is their hypocrisy. He says they are hypocrites, that they live a different life than they tell others to live. And we notice that today in Christian churches that Christianity has been rocked by incessant scandals where you find out that there are immoral preachers, that there are financial scandals, there's immorality of every kind that abounds in today's church. I even heard this, that there was a visitor who came into our church just a few weeks ago and was asking questions about me. And this visitor wanted to know, is your pastor a womanizer? Is your, is your pastor, has he ever been involved in any kind of an immoral affair? And you wonder, what kind of church has that person been exposed to that a visitor would have to come into a church and ask questions like that? Where would they ever be exposed to such things? And the sad truth of the matter is, in many churches, they have been exposed to those kinds of things. Moral failures abound in the church today among the preachers that say that they are preachers of God's word and so people need to check them out. I mean I could give you a list of pastors that have dragged the name of Jesus Christ through the mud with immoral lifestyles and the sad thing is that churches have become used to that and they permit it as if it really doesn't matter. And then there's all the financial messes that goes on today. There's a whole industry of preachers that are involved in what's called the prosperity gospel. The word of faith preachers, the charismatic circles, people that prey on on, on poor people and bilk them out of millions of dollars and tell them that they'll just send in their seeds, if they'll just plant their seeds for Jesus, then they'll become very prosperous. And those seeds that need to be planted are dollar bills or bills of larger denominations, and the people become poorer than ever. 
And that doctrine is built upon a false promise that what God is concerned about most for you today is what your material status is. That God is concerned that you live well in the world today. And he wants all Christians to be wealthy. Well, that's not what the Word of God says. These are people that are in the sensual things. They want their best life now. And the pastors are totally unsympathetic to what they've done to the people. They send in their money and they get rich while the people live in poverty. Now, what you would be much better off doing is taking your money to the casino and spend it there rather than send it to a preacher who promises you a fabulous return. Now, God is not in the casino and God is not in those churches. You have a better chance at the casino of getting rich than you do with a preacher who says, send it to me and you'll get rich. At least you've got a lucky chance over there. You might hit on some kind of a jackpot. And I'm not encouraging you to do that, but, but you, that could happen to you. But I can promise you this for sure. If you send your money into a preacher that says that you're going to become prosperous, if you sow these dollars, send me your money, then you've just thrown it away. Because you're not going to get any of it back. That's not the way that God operates. And then Jesus says, or gives another characteristic, he says that a false teacher loves recognition. Now Jesus remarked in this passage how the Pharisees loved the special clothing that set them off from the rest of the people. And what that was was a part of the show. It was to make people think that they were extra special holy. And I warned you about that in a previous message. Be careful about people who make their clothing the difference between who's a Christian and who is not a Christian. But in this particular instance, uh, the clothing was a part of their show. And do you know that through the centuries of Christianity, there has been a Christianity that's developed, a false Christianity that says that clothing actually has mystical powers. Now, you would say, well, that's impossible. Clothing has mystical powers, and yet that's what the Roman Catholic Church teaches. They, they, they promise people that if you wear a particular type of clothing, that there will be special indulgences that are granted to you by God or by the Virgin Mary if you wear this clothing. Jesus was looking over this crowd that was assembled at the temple and scattered among them were these religious leaders who wore types of clothing that they thought made them look holy. Ostentatious clothing. Remember the picture we had of the huge tassels that were worn, and that tassel was to set them apart. And then they took the scriptures and they wrote them down and put them in leather boxes and tied the scriptures to their head. And then they stood on the street corners and they shouted out their prayers so that people could hear them. And then they publicly announced the amount of the tithes that they gave. And then when they were fasting, they would take ashes and they would smear it on their faces to appear to be emaciated from hunger. And all of that was just to show it was fakery to make people think that they were holy. So they were hypocrites. And that same kind of hypocrisy is found in Christianity today. False teachers love recognition. And then we notice what Jesus says in verse 6. He says they love the best seats at the feast now, they wanted to sit on elevated platforms in the synagogues. They wanted to be up front where they could be seen. Now, even Baptists like to do that. Some churches have a whole row. Now, you'll notice in our row up here, it's empty. But uh, they have a whole row of seats 
here across the platform where those who have completed five years of Sunday school, it seems, if they can come and sit on the platform and they're above the rest of the people. Baptists will even do that. Now, I know that, that all of the Baptists that do that, they're not necessarily proud, but I do have to wonder this. Why are the servants of the people sitting above the people? Why are the servants sitting above the people that they serve? A few years ago, I was in a Southern Baptist church in Tampa, Florida. Uh, I was working there, and I used to attend this church. And it was a church like many in the South are. Uh, if you've been in the South, you know there are many, many huge Baptist churches that are there. And I attended this church, and I really liked the pastor. Uh, he preached from the King James Version of the Bible, which is a rarity among Southern Baptists today. But the messages that he preached were really solid. But I noticed that in this huge church that it was not like what I was used to seeing among independent Baptists. Because in this huge church, there was nobody that was sitting on the platform. The preacher just went up when it was his turn to speak. And the rest of the time, he sat with his people. There weren't any pretenses there. There was no pride there. There was no insistence that the pastor's boots be licked and that he have a valet to make sure that his ties were straight and his suit coat was pressed properly. We don't need that kind of pride in the church. What we need to do is to serve God together. Let's do that faithfully and let's not put on a face that hides hypocrisy in our heart. And I certainly don't mean to indict all churches over the practice. Maybe it's not pride. But can't you see in this passage that Jesus is picking on those kinds of practices? Now, we'll get to it in just a minute. But we're happy to pin verse number 9 on the Roman Catholics. But we are unwilling to see Baptist in verse number 6. Now, here's another pet peeve. It's one of mine, and it must be one of Jesus. In verse number 7, he says, and this is what they love. They love greetings in the markets and to be called of men, rabbi, rabbi. Or in other words, when people saw them on the, in, on the street, they loved to be greeted by their titles. They loved to be called rabbi. Now, do you understand what that means? Rabbi is a term like we would use doctor today. It means teacher and it means like we would use a term doctor. And the Pharisees loved for people to call them doctor. And they wore that title like a badge that said, you're stupid and I'm not. And you're not worth listening to, but I am. You know, it reminds me of the prophet Amos in the Old Testament, who was just a poor peasant shepherd, and yet God had called him to be a prophet. He wasn't from the school of prophets. He didn't have a fancy degree. And when he started preaching these hard-hitting sermons in which he told the people that they must repent, well, they sent a representative from the local ministerial association, and they asked him what he was doing. And this rep came and told him that a dumb, ignorant fool like him had no business preaching. And Amos just got up into his face, and he said, I am called by God to preach, and I'll show you who is a fool. And that really turned out bad for the association rep. A few years ago, there was a friend of mine who went to a conference for preachers in Southern California. And he said, I have never seen so many doctors in all my life. And they all came up to him and they wanted to introduce themselves as doctor this and doctor that, making sure that he knew that they had the title. And he felt really bad because he wasn't a doctor too. He was a lawyer. And uh, he was one who actually earned a degree 
where the preachers at this conference had been handed theirs at a diploma mill. But they love to have doctor in front of their name. Folks, I'm telling you, that is a pride thing, and there's no place in the church for that. I like what what Arthur Pink had to say. Uh, He was a Baptist preacher that was really smarter than anybody that you'll ever meet. But he refused to be called doctor because he thought that someone might think that he was promoting himself rather than Jesus Christ. I know most of you have probably heard of J. Vernon McGee. He's another man that didn't like for people to call him doctor. Now, everybody did call him that because they use it as a term of respect because he was a very learned man, but he never actually liked the title because he wasn't interested in taking the spotlight off of Jesus and putting it on himself. Now, Jesus said, take a look at that. False teachers love recognition. They want somebody to brag on them. And what good preachers ought to do, true preachers of the gospel of Christ, we should not practice what false teachers do lest we confuse people about who we really are. But I know that all all preachers, we're all human. All of us like a little bit of recognition. We love it when somebody pays us a compliment and when they say something like, Pastor, that was a really good sermon today. You know, sometimes my wife says, that sermon was way too long. Or that, that, that sermon was way too hard to understand. And I say, well, Brother Jorge liked it. He, he told me that he liked it. And she always comes back with this. She says, what did you expect him to say? He's not going to complain to you. So she has a lot less confidence in Jorge to tell the absolute truth all the time than I do. Because I think he's right, of course. But you know something, folks? I I don't really have to be complimented. I don't have to be complimented for a sermon. Give all the glory to God. If I ever say anything that helps anybody, give the glory to God. Look at verse number 8. He says, But be not ye called rabbi, for one is your master, even Christ, and all ye are brethren. Jesus says here, The rabbi is not your head guy, I am. He says, I'm your head guy. And that's what every preacher should do. He should hide behind the cross and let Jesus shine. So I I might like to compliment. So that's, you know, we, we do like those. I don't deserve to be complimented. And you don't necessarily have to say amen at this point. But I I don't really deserve that. Here's what Jesus says. He says, you and I are brethren. And so the preacher who stands up here and the person who sits out there, we are brethren. I am not your Lord. Christ is your Lord and your master. And so why would I never ever need to be recognized? What we need to do is get away from a lot of this preacher worship and make Christ the one that we worship. Now look at verse 9. He says, And call no man your father upon the earth, for one is your father which is in heaven. Call no one but God your father. Now he's speaking here about the spiritual sense. Now obviously you have a physical father, and it's all right if you call him father, but Jesus is talking here in the spiritual sense that there is no one who can give you, who can birth you to eternal life, but God who is your father. So we're not to worship men as if some man is able to make us a Christian. 
And what I'm supposed to do, I'm supposed to preach the word that God has given me. I am to give you the gospel, but it is not in my power to make you believe. And it's not in my power to give you life. Only God can take the gospel that's preached from his word and actually move your heart till you come to acceptance of Jesus Christ. Only God can give you faith. Only God can give you eternal life. The other day I had a conversation with a missionary... And he was insistent that man is not totally depraved. And he was insistent that man was not so radically altered by the fall that he couldn't just change his mind at any moment and decide that he was going to follow Christ. And do you understand what that means? He didn't believe that salvation was entirely of the Lord. He wanted to leave some room for us to take credit for our salvation. He wanted to leave something for man to do to help the Lord save him. And so his theology actually made repentance and faith the work of man. But don't you know that the Bible says that it is God who grants repentance unto life? And the Bible says that it's God who gives us faith. And so God is not going to let you take credit for anything in your salvation... And much less would he let me take credit for anything that happens to you. Now, God has designed salvation so that we have no right to boast. Salvation is all by his grace. In Ephesians chapter 2, it says, For by grace are you saved through faith, and that not of yourselves is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. So he says here that there is only one who is your spiritual father, and that is God. Now, you and I both know that the priest over here at St. Elizabeth Ann Seton on Snyder likes to be called Father. And the Pope likes to be called Father. That's what his name means. Pope means Papa. Pope means Father. Now, they are not, as we know, your physical father. Or at least they better not be, or something's wrong in Denmark. Rotten in Denmark or rotten at the Vatican, I should say. So they're not your physical father. So what is it what they claim when you call them father? Well, this is the very thing that they claim. They claim that they are your spiritual father. And this is because they believe that the priest must administer sacraments to you. And if the priest doesn't do that for you, then you are never going to get to God. And so he is your spiritual father. He is the mediator that stands between you and God. But Jesus said, you only have one father. And that is not a priest, and that is not the Pope. Your one Father is God. Now, sometimes people will stop here at the church, and they want to come in to pray. This has happened several times that people see a church here, and they want to come into the church and pray. And they'll see me, and they'll say, Father, will you come and pray with me? I say, whoa, whoa, you got the wrong fellow here. Uh, I, I don't want to take God's title. I'm not your father. But I am happy to go in and pray with you to the heavenly father. I'm happy to do that. But I am not your father. Folks, I don't even want to be called reverend. Don't call me Reverend Smith. There's only one who is reverend, and that is God. I don't need God's title. Save all the titles and give all the glory to God. You can call me pastor. That's fine. Pastor means shepherd. And that's all that I am, just a poor old shepherd like the prophet Amos was in the Old Testament. Shepherd is good enough for me. So in verse number 10, he said, Don't be called masters because Christ is your only master. And that was a far 
cry from the attitude that these Pharisees had. And it's a far cry from the pastor who wants to be lifted up and be the head of the church. Now you see, what Jesus is trying to do here is to flush out this attitude that preachers have of self-importance. Now, you can see that what he's doing here is that he's setting up his own disciples to receive the same kind of teaching, and he's showing that they were not to be like the Pharisees. This is not like the preachers that you see today. And since he was teaching the people this, then they were going to look for spiritual leaders that did not have the characteristics of the Pharisees. Now what Jesus was going to do, he was going to leave them. And the apostles would become the ones who would, who would lead the people and teach them the faith. And so what he didn't want them to do was to take pride in their apostleship. He didn't want them to say, well, I am an apostle of the Lord Jesus Christ and that makes me great because they were already prone to do that. They were already arguing with each other about who is going to be greatest in the kingdom of God. And you see that several times throughout Matthew. And Jesus did not want his own disciples to be put up there in front of the people like they were somebody. They were nobody. They were nothing except by the grace of God. And that's the way it is to be for every preacher. You don't want a preacher who sets himself up and exalts himself to be something that he's not because he's only what he is by the grace of God. Now that's a prelude. His preparation for the disciples is a prelude to verses 11 and 12. He says, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant, and whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now, in the previous verses, Jesus had just shown them how false teachers are. And now he's going to tell us what true teachers are. Now, the false teacher claims to speak for God. They are hypocrites. They love the recognition. But true teachers are different from that. And so now he gives us next the identifying marks of true teachers. Now, the easy thing for me to do here is to save a lot of time and say, take everything that I've said about a false teacher and reverse it, and you'll have the marks of a true teacher. I could save that to save time, but you know me. I'm not interested in saving time. And so what I want to do is wring out all the value I can for those of you who made a long trip over here. So I'm going to do this for you. I'm going to reverse this for you. Now, as we said, a false teacher loves to talk And he loves to say that he speaks for God. But a true teacher does not start out talking. A true teacher listens to God. Now eventually he is going to speak for God, but he starts out by listening to God. He doesn't have his own agenda. And a true teacher seeks God in the way that God wants to be sought. A true teacher knows that when the Bible speaks... That is God speaking. This is what Paul says to the Thessalonians. He says, For this cause also thank we God without ceasing, because when you received the word of God which ye heard of us, you received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually worketh also in you that believe. W.A. Criswell wrote on this passage, and he said, Nowhere is there a more lucid affirmation in the New Testament that the apostles considered their words to be the very vehicles of the word of God. In fact, the notable contrast between the words of men and the words of God is stressed. The phrase effectively works in you means to energize, almost 
Always, New Testament writers use this term for some form of supernatural activity. The Word of God is supernatural. Now, when God told the apostles His Word and they wrote those words in the Bible, those were the supernatural words of God. Now, what we have here is not simply black letters written on white pages. No, this Word of God is supernatural. And that doesn't mean that your Bible is going to sprout wings and fly all over the room. That's not what it means. And so you don't have to worry about setting your Bible up and making a shrine to it in your home and bowing down to it. But what is contained, the content of these pages here, is the supernatural word of God. This is what the book of Hebrews says. For the word of God is quick. That word means living the Word of God is living and powerful. It's sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing asunder of soul and spirit and of the joints and the marrow and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. Now the Hebrew, the writer of Hebrews is saying that the Bible is alive and the Bible is fresh and the Bible is vibrant. The Bible is powerful. And when you take it and when you ingest it, when you feed upon the words of God, the Holy Spirit will take this word and it will do all sorts of things in your soul. The Bible roots sin out of your life. The Bible will make you clean. Ephesians 5 says that the word washes and it sanctifies. And if the Bible is able to do that, then what am I going to say or do that is more than that? Why would I come into the pulpit and just lay the Bible aside and make up my own story or to read from somebody's psychobabble? Why would I do that? You don't need that. What you need is the Word of God. Now, the Bible is its own testimony to this. The psalmist says in Psalm 119, verse 9, Wherewithal shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. In the 11th verse, thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. In the 105th verse, thy word is a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. In Psalm chapter 1, he says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord, and in his law doth he meditate day and night. And I could go on because there are many such passages in the Word of God. And so what the, Bible, the, the preacher of righteousness is not to do, he is not to put the Bible away. And you're never going to get your money's worth if you go to a church that does not value the Bible, does not teach from the Bible, does not stick to the Bible, does not insist upon the Bible, because this is the very thing that you need. There is nothing else that's going to help you. I know there's a church over in Katati, and there are many such churches around us that tell you, do not bring your Bible to church with you. You don't need the Bible. And I would ask you, who has the audacity to say that what they say is more important than what God says? Who has such audacity? But what do we find in churches today? The Bible is very little spoken of. Hardly ever is it read. Most people don't carry a Bible to church because they've been taught they really don't need a Bible. But you need your Bible. 
This is how God speaks to you. So a true teacher listens to God, and the only way that he's going to hear God is through his word. Now, as one fellow said, if you want to hear God speak audibly, then read your Bible out loud, because that's the way that God speaks. Now, secondly, then, a true teacher is genuine. He's not proud. He's not a hypocrite. He doesn't pretend. And that's best shown by the way that he puts self on the back burner and pushes others to the front. Now, Jesus says here in verse, 20, uh, verse 11 of chapter 23, But he that is greatest among you shall be your servant. Who ever heard of a proud servant? Have you ever heard of a proud servant? The word servant here is diaconus. It's the same word from which we get deacon. A deacon is a person who serves other people. And so in Bible times, if you wanted someone to serve you, if you wanted someone to wait on you, what you did is what you, you went and you found a diaconus. And that's where we got the word deacon. And the original word actually means to stir up dust in the service of others. So this is the way the preacher of the gospel is to be. He's to be genuine. He's to be honest. And he's not going to tell you to do something that he's not willing to do himself. The greatest preacher is one who has a servant's heart. And if necessary, he labors in obscurity and he keeps on doing the work and he doesn't get recognition. He doesn't want the recognition. He doesn't want anyone to praise him and tell him how fine he is. He just keeps on working because that's what a servant does. And then Jesus says, do you want to be called master? Do you want to, do you want to be a master? Then let's see what a master does. What does the master do in Christianity? Well, a godly master bends down and washes feet. That's what Jesus did. He bent down and he washed the disciples' feet and he was teaching them to think more about others than about self. Don't be so concerned about being up on a pedestal so people can see you. Now that helps us describe this last characteristic of a true teacher and that is a true teacher is humble. Verse 12, And whosoever shall exalt himself shall be abased, and he that shall humble himself shall be exalted. Now we notice the contrast between how a false teacher operates and a true one. In verse number 6, he said the Pharisees love the uppermost rooms at the feast. They love the chief seats in the synagogues. But do you know what the humble servant of God does? He goes up to those that are in the chief seats and he crawls up under the table and he washes their feet. And so he gets down in the humble position and he's willing to do the worst job. But let me caution you about, it, about something. You can see how badly that some people miss this point. So let me tell you what a, a group of one guys did. Uh, this was a college coach in his, with his basketball team. And this coach wanted to show his players that life was more than basketball. Life is more than the recognition that they would receive by going pro and making millions of dollars. And you know how the pros are. Uh, you know who that is. They love self. It's all about them. Now, he wanted to show these players humility. And so he took them to a nursing home. And they got down on their knees and they washed the feet of the patients. But you know something? It was a media event. The newspapers were there. The television cameras were there. 
And they just followed them along as they washed feet, and everybody was all smiles while they were washing feet. And so what looked to be a humble exercise was really nothing more than a pharisaical task, and the coach used that as a recruiting tool to show parents how much he wanted to teach his players values. But if you want to show real humility, you do something like that when nobody else knows about it. Now, what God wants to know about you is are you the same person behind closed doors as you are when people can see you? Are you doing things that you claim are for God God, and you look around to see if anybody notices you? Are you really a humble person? A servant doesn't do this. He has a job to do. The servant never expects to receive applause for what he does. Now take your Bible and turn to Luke chapter 17. And here Jesus gives us a perfect illustration of the relationship of a servant to the master, of his servants to him. And we see what a servant does in this passage. Luke chapter 17 and verse number 7, Jesus says here, But which of you, having a servant plowing or feeding cattle, will say unto him by and by, when he has come from the field, go and sit down to meet. So which of you has a servant, and he's out there working in the field, and he gets done with his work, and now he comes in to eat, and will not rather say unto him, make ready wherewith I may sup, and gird thyself, and serve me, till I have eaten and drunken, and afterward thou shalt eat and drink. Doth he thank that servant, because he did the things that were commanded him? I trow not, that means I think not. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you say, we are unprofitable servants, we have done that which was our duty to do. So as a Christian, why are you waiting for recognition? The humble servant knows that when he's done the very best that he can do, there is nothing for him to brag about. The best that we can do is inadequate. See, Christ, our master, has the right to expect perfection from us, and there's none of us that's ever going to reach that standard. So don't think that you've done something great because you put yourself out for someone. What he wants you to do is think about what he did. What have you done for Christ that comes within a million miles of what he's done for you? I mean, what what did Christ do? He gave up the glories of heaven. He came to this earth to be a servant. He put himself out there for other people. He spent his whole life in the servitude of others only to be taken to the cross and crucified. And so when you think that you are so great and you've sacrificed so much for someone, just step back and see what Christ did. And you'll see that you have no room to boast. So you can go outside here of our church and like our men do and you may kill yourself working on the church lawn and they do a marvelous job at that. You can kill yourself in the hot sun doing that. You can be someone who fixes food for someone who just got out of the hospital. You can go to the homeless shelter and you can spend six nights a week working there. Why are you doing that? Is it because you want someone to pin a medal on you? Well, if you do, then you've got the wrong motive. And don't get me wrong. We appreciate everybody who works in the ministry of this church, everybody who makes the ministry go. But I surely do hope that your motive is right. It only counts when the motive is right. So what does Jesus say? He says, do it for him. 
do it without the recognition. Be willing to put yourself down and take on the role of a servant. And then when that happens, you will be exalted. Now, this is not the common preaching that you hear in churches today because today it's all about self. It's all about my importance. It's all about what I want. It's all about making me happy, getting where I need to be. But you know what God's going to do? One of these days, he's going to look back and he's going to take out the record and he's going to see was the motive for what you did a heart for God. And he's going to look to see that you loved your neighbor as yourself. And he'll look to see that you never expected to be patted on the back. And then when he sees that, he'll heap his heavenly praises on you. Eternal rewards are waiting for those who love God. And he'll say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Now, this is what Jesus is after here. He doesn't want you to be the self-righteous Pharisee. Don't have a religion that's all about you. Forsake all of that. Forsake the popular preaching that says, my happiness and what I gain for myself is the most important. It's not. See, God doesn't care anything about your personal indulgences that will make you happy. What he wants are servants that are all about him and none about us. And this is the reason why he tells us to take all of our authority from his word because if we're going to speak for him, then the message that we give has to be all about him. It's not about us. What Jesus did here was to ferret out the Pharisees, the false teachers, and false teachers must be found out. You're to watch out for them and then you are to look for men of God that speak about him and never about self. So... Let's not be afraid to root out the false. Let's don't be afraid to do it. Let's speak plainly about them. And let's warn people not to listen to those who mishandle the word of God and are out there handing out maps to the broad way. We are to speak as Jesus spoke and we are to speak the truth because it's only the truth that will save the soul from hell. So what does your preacher say? What is he teaching is it God's word? Does he speak about Jesus Christ? Does he exalt him? And if that's what you find in the church that you attend, that's a good place for you to go. Is the message of salvation right? And does he exalt Jesus Christ? That's the most important thing that we do every time that we stand in a pulpit. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you so much for your word. We do earnestly desire that we would be servants of yours that we would be the humble servant who's willing to do all that you ask of us. And then when we've done all that we can do, we know that we are still unprofitable servants. We have so far to go. We have such a long road to travel to ever be like you. But help us to try it every single day. Help us to be what you want us to be. And we do know that when we reach heaven, you'll give us that eternal reward that you promised. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. Uh, just help us to take the words of these three messages to heart that we would be looking for those who teach falsehoods, to watch out for them, to turn people away from them, and point them to a place where they can hear the gospel of Jesus Christ preached in truth. Speak to our hearts today, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to this presentation of the Berean Baptist Church of Ronan Park, California. If you would like further information about our church, 
please feel free to call us at area code 707-584-7275 or write to us at Berean Baptist Church, 6298 Country Club Drive, Ronert Park, California, 94928. Additionally, you may visit us on the World Wide Web at www.bebaptist.org.